Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at The Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just €3 Euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. Good evening, everybody. Um, when the 2016 Brexit vote sent Great Britain into a period of national emotional meltdown, <laughs> Ali Smith was the first among the country's novelists. To meltdown. <laughs> <laughs> and once she had picked herself up after melting down. And reformed. <laughs> she was the first to understand that these turbulent new times called for new ideas, for new modes of thought, and for new ways of writing books. And so began her season's quartet. Autumn, winter, spring and summer. Written and published at the rate of more or less a book a year, these novels followed a colourful cast of characters as they lived through many of the events and upheavals that readers had only just lived through themselves. Now, while Ali Smith may have run out of seasons, our troubled world has not stopped <laughs> providing her with material. Yeah. And so comes Companion Piece, the fifth volume in the increasingly inaccurately named quartet. <laughs> Taking the ongoing pandemic as its backdrop, Companion Piece is a mischievous, enigmatic puzzle of a novel that examines how companionship and togetherness might be possible in a world in which everything, from a deadly virus to the vested interests of corrupt politicians, is fighting to divide us. Yeah. Companion Piece also perfectly exhibits what is so radical about Ali Smith's project. For while these novels might be thought of as state-of-the-nation books, they don't strive to make sense of the political chaos, but instead do something much more profound. In peeling back the layers of history, compressing and extruding our experience of time and unraveling the hidden meanings of words, they refuse straightforward explanations and instead set about reinvigorating the soul. Ooh. They also serve to remind us, despite how it might sometimes feel, despite how useful it is for certain people to convince us otherwise, that our lives are rich and textured and many layered, and that by engaging our imaginative and creative forces, as well as our compassion, we might just make the world a better place. Ali Smith, welcome to Shakespeare and Company. Oh, Adam, thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. It is a total dream to be here. It feels like a dream. It's a dream to be here. Uh, when you said the thing about you know reaching out at the time when we when we knew that the, our beloved bookshops might be in trouble, there wasn't even a question. I mean, one of the, actually one of the most, if you could say there were any exciting things that happened in COVID, one of the most exciting things was the rev, the real impetus and to, to go to an independent bookshop that everybody felt and the impetus to read and the impetus to to want to think beyond Netflix and that, not that Netflix isn't great because it is but we knew at that point that there was something more and something else we wanted and the the the, 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 the book trade as it were was so much more than a trade and that we knew its worth and we knew what was was worth what to us then all over again if we had forgotten um I am so Honoured to be here. Thank you, Sylvia, for that lovely introduction. Thank you, Adam, for that lovely introduction. I hope that's true about the soul. I read this fantastic quote in Orwell, one of Orwell's essays about um, about a month ago. Um, he was quoting Marx. Uh, Marx said, uh, just before he says the thing about the opium of the peoples, he says that religion is the sigh of the soul in a soulless world. And Orwell picks up on that and he, he kind of suggests that that sigh of the soul in a soulless world, as it were, is what reading is about and what art is about and that we pull always towards the soul because there is no such thing as a soulless world if you pull towards the soul. So I, I was really interested that Orwell had, had seen that little the sigh of a soul in a soulless world. We knew it when things were forcing something that felt isolated and, and impossibly existential on us. We pulled towards the soul. And that actually, that description could almost apply to to your novels as well. I mean, particularly the uh, the context that we find uh, ourselves in in companion piece. Mm. So, 
your previous book, Summer, did sort of take in the the beginnings of the of the pandemic. But where we find ourselves here is deep in COVID, deep in the sort of the series of rolling lockdowns and opening up. And in a weird kind of way, in the middle of sort of a world encompassing event, but in which many of us experienced it very isolated. Um, So I'm curious, could you begin by just talking about the what it was about this particular world historical event, the the context of the COVID pandemic that made you realize you had to continue essentially the 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 quartet? When I was writing Summer, the whole time I was writing Summer, I knew there was a book that was waiting for me to write it and it was going like this at me. What are you doing? (laughs) Why are you writing that book? Why are you writing this book, this book, this wild thing? And it was kind of over here while I was writing and I could feel myself frustrated at myself uh, for, for, for writing Summer. And so I'm, you know, I f- I'm in two minds about Summer as a novel. I think, it, uh, and also I think one of the reasons I'm in two minds is that I was very, I felt very frustrated as, as the kind of person who doesn't, who kind of wants, wants to ask of form to open, that a closure was happening in the seasons. So the seasons were coming round and there were four and that was it, bang. There are four, and of course, there is no closure with seasons, except there is, um, if you look at global warming, there is. So questions of closure that come through the, the quartet um, were kind of not just playing on my mind, but actually annoying me. And the thing that was really annoying me was this wild book over here going, you don't know what I am yet, but you're not doing me. Why aren't you doing me? Why are you doing writing that? So I finished Summer and I gave it to Simon, and then I knew there was another book. And I was writing Summer while COVID was happening to us literally while it was opening on us. I started writing it in January and it just started to happen in January. We already pretty much knew that something was up. And then um, uh, it wrote wrote itself into summer. As I wrote summer, it was was a kind of parallel writing experience as as COVID grew around us and isolation happened. But I didn't really get a choice about companion piece. When I... I, um, uh, came out of summer and I thought okay so is there a book is there another book that's something to do with this but nothing to do with it is how could a book be both something to do with those four books and then nothing at all to do with those you know there was it's I felt like there was a, there was like a you know those you know when homeopaths take an essence of something and that's the thing they give you to make things supposedly better and it's a tiny tiny essence I thought I, I, I now think that this book is that essence of if you if you liquidize the the quartet right then to its <laughs> essence and then you drop that essence into a glass of water then that's that book would be the glass of water there's something in it that, that was absolutely formed by the essence of the, the the seasonal books and that I think partly because I knew there was this wild thing that I want that made me want to open form rather than close it and to open the you know this notion of a cycle so, so that there would be there wouldn't be a there's a there's a Celtic notion of this the snake whose tail is in its mouth and that's eternity. The snake with the tail in its mouth just goes round and round and round, pulls its you know tail in its mouth. That to, to, to ask that snake just to open its mouth and let the tail come out for a moment, you know, um, was was this was this book I think, and then I I don't know where where do ideas where does it come from I don't know but I knew that I began to be interested in what happened in the plague years. Partly because we were all thinking about the plague years, because we were deep in the plague years, um, and I, I began to think about the ways in which the in, in the UK for in UK history, um, the plague decimated places so fully and so kind of destructively to the barons who needed their workforce that they put new laws in place, the poor laws, to keep people in place so that they couldn't move around. And I was thinking. God, there's a connection between freedom of movement then and freedom of movement now. And then I, I was thinking about the what it will have been like, what it would have been like for a person who made things to make the letter with which you branded a person who was caught moving around where they shouldn't. So in other words, if you were a wanderer and you turned up in a village in the 1400s, 1500s and into the 1600s and nobody knew you and you didn't have a trade that you could prove or that anyone would let you prove or if you had no work, you couldn't prove you had work and you had no money, they would brand you with a letter V for vagrant or vagabond. Here, sometimes on your face. And there's a whole trade in letters. I mean, there was S for slave and R for rogue and A for affray if you had a fight and various other al- alphabet letters. 
And I began to think about the artisans, the people who made things, who will have made those letters. And then I began to think about the notion of letters anyway and the randomness of the way a word works with another word put together from random letters to make meaning. And then that phrase that's at the core of this book came into my head. The phrase is, it's a question, it's curlew or curfew. The difference between two words is one consonant. The difference between the meanings of the words is life and movement and freedom and wildness and control. And then I, there was some, and then just the book just started and I just went with it yeah. and closed my eyes and you know there and there was a book. And quite early on we meet uh, Sam, who yeah. is our first person narrator of, of large large portions of um, of the book. And what the, the when we meet her, we have a sense of this is something which I think applies to her, but also to a lot of the characters in the book, is nobody has come through the last few years unscathed, in a sense. So, so Sand is um, an artist, and we'll talk about her particular art in a minute. Um, but there's, there's a moment where she sort of, she seems to be, at the beginning, losing faith in her work, losing faith in her life, in her, in her decisions. And she said, sort of, in fact, so much had shifted that I was pretty sure I wasn't the person I'd once been. And that really resonated for me because I think it's something which a lot of people uh, at this particular point after the years we've lived through, whether that be the turbulent political years or the, the, the more recent years of the, of the pandemic. And so it sort of, it feels like, as you, you talked about the seasons as kind of an opening up. And it feels like almost like at the beginning you are sort of posing uh, a question of sort of how essentially how Sand might potentially extricate herself from this situation. Who here feels like the same person they were before COVID? We've all changed. Every, something fundamental has changed in us all. Some, a fundamental understanding about mortalities and worth has changed in us all. And we've seen the world change around us. We saw it change overnight. Oh my God, the world changed. Uh, it could change overnight. The fact that it could, that things could be organized so very quickly to change, uh, well, it, it blows us all away because actually we can change things. We can do it that fast if we if we want to. We can change this world. It can be done and we can work together and we can pull off this thing together that is good for all of us together. Meanwhile, division, 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 division. And the, the, fall, the fallout in the UK of deaths was massive. And, and the farcical politics around the fallout of that death was farcical. And so those two words, tragedy and farce, were featuring close up in that notion of who are we then if we've changed? What has changed? What can we do when we're faced with this change, with this worth, these questions of why are we here? What are we doing? How are we going to do it together while we're all in isolation? And we were, we were beginning to understand that. And yet there's these two words, tragedy, farce, tragedy, farce, playing at the back. I think with this book, it, it is, a, is about the ways in which we went to the depths of a despair of isolationism. And when I, when I use that word, I, I mean it personally, but I also mean it nationally and internationally, because the big questions are now who gets to move where in the world if we ever get to move outside our houses. <laughs> Again, was one of the questions of lockdown. How do we even live with other people? and who crosses the threshold, and how do we cross our own threshold, and then the wider, wider questions of what a threshold is, what a border is, who gets to belong, who doesn't get to, be, to come in or to go out, and those questions all in the air. Uh, coming down, as it were, to the, the main question of identity and the larger question of world identity, all hanging around the story of a medieval lock made by an anonymous medieval locksmith blacksmith history locked how do we open it and that is one of the um i think it's one, one of the interesting things about sanders that she's in this kind of position where she is doubting in a sense the the value of her art of her of her practice she feels herself kind of paralyzed by uh, this practice that she has been working on and developing for for years i think she's quite happy in her art really <laughs> i mean she's she paints what, what sand does as an artist uh, she uh paints the words of poems on top of each other in oil on a canvas so she takes a poem and then she paints the first word and then she lets it dry and then she paints the second word and she lets it dry and if any colors turn up in the poem 
and she uses those colors to paint mm -hmm. those words. And then if another color turns up, she changes the color and paints it on top. So she gets this block of color that just, you know, gets, gets more and more like a kind of club sandwich of, of words. And her, as her father says to her at, at one point, you can't even read the poem. Why are you, <laughs> why are you doing this? This isn't even, why do you think it's art? You're just the stupid hobby that you say, you know, is, is your life. What are you doing? You've wasted your life. You're supposed to be a clever person. And you went to university and you've wasted your life. She's like, the whole point is all the words are there. You just can't see them, but they're there. They're all in there. That's that's what that you know. And they have this argument about whether or not it's worth what she's doing is worth anything. And of course, she thinks it's worth something. Of course, of course, it is. Actually, I'd, it would be really good to try to try to make one of those pictures and see what it looks like. Um, <laughs> I uh, I imagine a you know an actual tangible slab of oil and color, which. You know, it, it does actually look like a piece of extraordinary nourishment, mm. um, which, if you know or you don't know, it doesn't matter. All the words are there of whichever poem she's decided to, to paint. Mm. And at one point in the book, she thinks, I think I'll paint a novel. How long would that take? I think a long, long time. Would I start at the beginning? Would I start at the end? And starting at the end, you get to the beginning, so there's a hope in that. But starting at the beginning and getting to the end, there's a complete... And you see, so all these questions are kind of of what it is we... Uh, make yeah. of ourselves, of our lives, mm. and of the things which have mattered to us in terms of words and meaning. Yeah, yeah. And I guess in the way that uh, artists and writers can be called upon to help others yeah. as well, because uh, there's, so there's an, an old friend from her past or an old acquaintance from her past, kind of uh, calls her up and essentially sort of inducts her into this this mystery of the of the Boothby Lock as you mm. as you mentioned it actually comes to her for for help mm. and that in a sense seems to catch that a little bit off guard because I suppose after years of perhaps people not expect her not expecting people to come for an artist's help suddenly there's this person who's saying because of who you are because of uh because of your you know you have followed this artistic route you might be able to find answers where I have failed um what do you do if an acquaintance if you're in a bad way anyway and your father's in hospital and the phone goes and you're scared to answer the phone in case there's something horrible about your father on the phone but you pick it up and it's it's not the hospital and they're on the phone there's a person that you sort of knew back at college sort of you didn't even like each other in fact you really didn't like each other but they're asking you something they ask you a mysterious question do you go with it do you go with that phone lighting up in the dark in a room do we engage uh, or do we not engage? And what is the point at which we decide to engage? And what happens when we do decide across whatever the border is that we've made round ourselves? What happens when we when we cross that? Mm. I think all those I think all those questions are kind of at play in in, in that. Yeah. yeah. And the, the the question, as you mentioned earlier, is um, so curlew or curfew? So this woman, um, in case I don't know if you, if you if you've read the book, I don't want to spoil it or anything, but this woman phones up. Sand and says, "Hi, it's me." And Sand's like, "I don't remember. I hardly remember you. I don't think I liked you. You didn't like me. Why are you phoning me?" She doesn't say that. She goes, "Hello," <laughs> all in all in one word, "Hello." Um, and the woman says, "Okay, so I was uh, accompanying this medieval artifact, late medieval, early Renaissance artifact, uh, through customs, and they stopped me and locked me in a room." And I couldn't get out of the room and there was nothing in the room. There was no handle on the door. There were no windows. There was just me and the, they left the lock with me and I couldn't contact anybody. And then I heard a voice say, curlew or curfew, you choose. And I don't know what it means. And now I can't sleep. Do you think this person who's phoned you up is winding you up? Do you think this is a, a scam of some kind? Do you think it really is a real question? Is it a, a, a philosophical thing happening? Uh, do you respond or not? I'm not sure what Curly I would do. Or to be what would we do? What do we do? It's, I would like to know, think I would yeah. respond, but I think it also takes a certain effort of will, I suppose, on the effort of will yeah. to cross isolation. Yeah. 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 And so just to talk a little bit about the uh, the two images. So the, the curly, curly, which I must admit was not a an animal I was particularly familiar with, and looked it up online, and it is one of the most beautiful oh, specimens. Curly's who doesn't know what a curlew is? Okay. A curlew is a quite large bird with a very, 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 very long beak. 
and they are all over Eurasia, and they're and they're in uh, they they're, they're more international than that, and they are sometimes local migrants and sometimes international migrants. They do both, um, and they fly with such grace that you cannot believe it for a bird with such a very long beak and such a sort of turkey-shaped body. They are so graceful and they make a noise like this. And they bring up their babies. Their babies are born and the babies start eating immediately. They don't need any looking after. They The parents keep them around them for a couple of days and then they're off into the... Which is why curlew babies get eaten a lot because other creatures prey on them because they're out in the world almost immediately. They're the most extraordinary birds. More than that, they're... I didn't know this until I started writing this book. I knew almost nothing about curlews, really. I knew a line of Dylan Thomas's poetry. Now, curlew, cry them down to kiss the mouths. Cry me down. Now, curlew, cry me down to kiss the mouths of their dust. He's singing it about a graveyard full of lovers who are dead and are now just ash and ground. And he says to the bird flying above him, cry me down to kiss their dust. It's such a beautiful thing. And when you hear a curlew, something extraordinarily haunting happens. And because of that, they have been revered through our culture, our, our aesthetic culture and our religious culture and our folklore culture has understood the importance of the curlew. The curlew turns up in one of the earliest of the um, uh, old English poems, the seafarer. The seafarer in a boat by him or herself Here's a curlew, and that, and says in, into the into the ether, into us all the centuries later who are still reading the poem. My only conversation is with curlews. Of course, it's not because they're having a conversation with us. So the curlew is this magic bird who makes this dialogue possible almost across time. The um, the curlew was also revered for being a pilgrim bird because curlews seemed because they had such a long beak. People originally thought they wouldn't be able to eat anything. How could they? They had such a long beak. They probably just ate air, so they were particularly pure. And if you ate them, they tasted pure. So the people ate them. They you know they ate so many curlews. They'd stopped eating curlews only in 1948 in the UK. Curly pie is apparently delicious. I don't know. Anyway, um, they have entered religious lore because they were seen as this moment of numinous connection. If you saw a curly or a curly looked at you, either it was an, an omen, which could go one way or another, but it was also a, a notion that God had just tipped you the wink. People have invested the curly with this kind of meaning. Also, there's this, these stories of saints who would lose their language and a curly would bring them a holy book and drop it at their feet, or would fish a book that a saint had dropped in the sea, out of the sea, and bring it back to the saint, and so on. So the curlew has, has it, as it were, accrued meaning for us over the years, and now the curlew is in curfew. The curlews are dying. We have, they're, they're, they're dying by half the number every year disappears. So again, what a revelation of where we are and how we're not looking after our species and how we need to, and how farming, Techniques have have you know pretty much almost killed off this extraordinary bird who's been our companion through all these understandings and nourishments of various kinds over the centuries. Curfew. Um, the the difference between the two words is simply one syllable. The notion of curfew comes from the French "cover your fire." Um, it was what you did at the end of the day to make sure your house didn't burn down and burn down the village. And curfew now means something utterly other, and we all know it all over again, all over the world, and are continuing to have to deal with notions of curfew. Um, and the relationship, again, between the notions of time, control, who says you can do what, and who puts the board around whatever it is you're doing, and this extraordinary bird who stood for and stands for so much. Mm. What's the choice? I think one of the the things with the the curlew when 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 reading companion piece, it struck me as a very Ali Smith kind of bird, <laughs> by which I mean it sort of uh, it seemed to be the story of the curlew seemed to be doing what you do in so much of your of your writing, and which I think is uh, so important. It's kind of excavating meaning in a sense. So like looking at words, looking at how. Uh, how, how we understand things and not looking for necessarily a definitive definition but looking to understand the story behind a word yeah. and behind an idea yeah. to kind of enrich our understanding of the word or in this case the bird 
Um, you don't have to look it. far. You know what? You just look up a dictionary and you find the most fantastic things that words just do in etymology. They're just, words are brilliant. They just, they unpack themselves immediately. It's really, really exciting. I have to say about Curly, though, I, as I was writing this book, uh, in the middle of it, I, be I began to think, you call it an Ali Smith idea. I was just I'm like, this is mad. What on earth am I doing? What is the, what is this thing about Curly's? What is What does it want of me? I have no idea what it wants of me. So I was thinking about putting it in the bin. And and it very nearly did. Um, meanwhile, while I was going, what on earth? I mean, what is this? What does it ask? What is it wanting? Um, um, a, an email came in from from Penguin. Um, uh, someone said to me, "Would would you like Ali to ask Paul McCartney a question?" Paul McCartney is going to do a a South Bank show uh, with um, uh, questions being asked of of him by lots of people. We'd like to ask him. And I was like, I have no idea what I'd ask Paul McCartney. <laughs> What on earth would you ask Paul McCartney? Um, and, uh, I was kind of stuck because as a small child, um, we used to go to my cousin's farm, which was down, I live, I live in the Highlands, we used to go to my cousin's farm, which was down in the south of England. And when I was a very small child, they used to pretend to be the Beatles. They used to phone up. They had a connective phone between the barn and the house and they would phone up and pretend to be Paul. So I was like, I, I was like, Paul McCartney, me ask Paul McCartney a question, actually get to, you know, to, you know, to communicate with the person who never phoned me, but I always imagined did, you know. Anyway, uh, I wrote back and said, I can't think of a question. And then two days later, I thought of a couple of questions. Um, and one was, um, would you ever re-release Give Ireland Back to the Irish, which is a song he sang very early on. And I thought this would be an interesting time to ask him about that song, 1970s song, Give Ireland Back to the Irish. Very simple little ditty tune, you know, and, and the BBC had banned it. So I thought that would be a good question to ask Paul McCartney. But the, the second question I wanted to ask him was about his sheep that he lets grow to the end of their life cycle on his farms. So they don't um, slaughter their sheep. They just they, they take, you know, they, they take the, the wool, as you have to do with sheep, to keep them uh, cool in the summer. Um, and the sheep live and they die of old age. And they have their lambs and the lambs die of old age, having had their lambs. And they have this kind of... So I thought I wanted to say, you know, what's that like? That must be, that's great. I wanted to say that's great because I thought it was a lovely idea. Anyway, I sent these questions off and Sam at Penguin wrote back to me, Sam Peterson, he said, uh, uh, we've missed it. And then three days later, he wrote, or something like that, he wrote and said, Paul has answered your question um, on uh, his blog. <laughs> so I went to the blog to, to see what the, the, the answer was. And Paul McCartney I, had not answered about Gavarna back to the Irish. I don't blame him. But um, he had, had answered about the sheep. He's like, yeah, we got the farm. The we got the first of the farms in Scotland. Linda and I moved up there with the kids. And it was a terrible time with the Beatles. We were all breaking up. It was awful. And it was London was hard. And we would go to Scotland and everything was just brilliant and we would and yeah the sheep they would and we, i remember one of the first things we did was re revive a lamb uh, that had been frozen and it came back to life and it was one of the most exciting things that had ever happened to me and then you see these birds flying over all the time these curlies and you've never seen anything like a curly flight it just flies across and you just think it's so beautiful you can't believe it and you see it land and you can't believe the the kind of the technology and the beauty of it and i was like oh <laughs> You know, there's there's a wretch called Alan Garner. If you you will know his books, The Owl Service and and Elidor and 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 he's a wonderful writer of um, primal stories. And Garner says that when something like that happens to you, when you think you're going mad, but something like that happens, it's a given. He calls it a given. It's a gift. And so I was like, I better get, I better, you know, listen to to that and and find out about Curlews and. With it. So the curlew stayed. The curlew was going nowhere. I mean, <laughs> so I, you, there will be a lot of writers in this room. You will know what it's like when an idea has decided that it, you, that you want it. Mm -hmm. That actually you're like, why would I want this? When you can't, oh. the, arg the argument, the dialogue between you and the question of why, is where I think it's the the, the kind of the gestation of a book. It's yeah. it's, where, it's where it all comes from. It's like a it's the point of life, the oh. the, the actual life force. The the you know. You put me in mind of um, the Canadian novelist Robertson Davies. When he was asked, where do you get your ideas? He always replied, I don't get my ideas. My ideas get me. That's it. That's uh, exactly right. He's right. He was right. He's a, yeah. we, we, don't, we, we think we are choosing and we mm. are not. I mean, it's the same with the seasonal books. I, 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 you know, years ago, I thought I'd like to write books about the seasons. Said to Simon, um, what about if I do these books 2015? 2015, we spoke, we spoke about it first, 2014, 2015, started writing them and then they told me what they were going to be about. And it was mm -hmm. about a time that had they had, you know, books choose us. Mm -hmm. 
and you're stuck with it. And we have to work out the the argument and the dialogue between us is partly what makes the book alive. You know, Simone de Beauvoir says a great thing. She says, mm. you go into a book not knowing where you're going and do it because if you knew the end, the book would be dead because mm. we don't know where we're going. We go into the we go into the dark with a, with what mm. we write and we just you know hold steady in the dark. With yeah, it. yeah. Mm. I'd like to stick with this idea of um, of words and language and kind of and excavating meaning because I think it's one thing that is significant in, in many different moments in companion piece about sort of uh, this kind of, I suppose, tension between a word having a meaning and a word having a story which gives it a kind of a rich understanding mm. and a rich meaning. And there's one moment, so uh, Martina Pelf, who is this friend who get in, gets in touch, uh, where one of... Um, you know what Pelf means? No. Pelf, Pelf is an English word connected to pilfer. Uh, it means dodgy money. It's a great word, and we don't know. We, it's a word that we sort of recognise because a pilfer is something in, in us recognises it, and we know there's a question of self in pelf at the same time because it holds the word, it holds most of the word self, the word pelf, and it's a it's a great it's a great yeah. word. Yeah, but yeah. one of one of uh, Martina's children, um, so uh, Sand gets to meet both of them, and one of them uh, has started using the pronouns oh, yeah. they and them. And one thing I think is particularly interesting about the way you you handle this in the book is that um, I think this is kind of a character. Character handles it for uh, me. Well, yeah. indeed, is yeah. <laughs> yeah. the sort of the, the tension sort of evaporates once you explore the, the history of the book. So you have Martina on one hand who is having difficulty understanding uh, what her child might want to do and, and, why, and why they might want to use these yeah. pronouns. Yeah. But you have Sand who knowing the etymology of the word and knowing a little bit about the the history of the use of they as a singular pronoun mm. suddenly it doesn't feel like something uh, outlandish outlandish or particularly radical but something that's rooted in the history of the word they has been naturally and uh, used used by human beings since medieval times probably before medieval times for no gender it has been it always has been it has been a way to express no gender to say someone is they, uh, that is that has a secret. And then the, the what what the what Sand says is is that the the use this use of the word to free ourselves from gender. She, she says it's one of this era's real revolutions and one of the most exciting things about language that grammar's as bendy as a live green branch on a tree. Because if words are alive to us, then meanings alive, and if grammar's alive, then the connection in it rather than the divisions in us will be energizing everything one way or another. It means. An individual person can be both individual and plural at the same time. There's real room to move in embracing the indeterminate, she says uh, to... I can't believe I'm reading in Shakespeare and Company. <gasps> Just like, like sitting and I can't even believe we're here. I can't actually believe this is a dream to be in this bookshop. Now, at this time, after those years, look, look where we are, everybody. Isn't that the best? Isn't that the best? Well. <laughs> It's it's a dream for us to have you here too, and if and if it's a dream for you to read, I'm going to ask you to repeat that dream because you're going to read okay. a little extract from the book, mm. sure, um, connected to uh, connected to, to language words. too. Fact, yeah, yeah. Um, so this book, uh, in a time of goodbyes, I found I was thinking a lot about the word hello, a lot, um, and this book has has become really, uh, a, 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 it's all about the word hello. Hello, hello, hello. It's comparatively quite a recent word, but like everything in language, it has deep roots. In all its forms, the dictionary says, it's a variant of a word from Middle French, hola, a combination of ho and la, meaning something like, hey there. It might also connect to the old hunting cry, hello, for when you sight what you are hunting and shout out with excitement as you start the chase. Or perhaps it might be closer to the sound of the word howl, like when Shakespeare uses it in Twelfth Night as one of the proofs of love, when one character tells another that to prove this love she'd hello your name to the reverberate hills till there's nothing else left in the air or the world but the name of the beloved. Or maybe it comes from the old English word hylan, which is a very versatile verb that can mean to heal and to save and to greet all at once. Or from another old English phrase altogether, one that may, may, means, sorry, may you be hail or may you be whole. 
It's possibly also the old high German word you'd have shouted if you were at the side of a river and needed to get a ferryman's attention. A form of it turns up in the rhyme of the ancient mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, a poem about the terrible act and ominous aftermath of the killing of a bird, the fate of the sailor who kills it, and the deadly fate of his companions. First the bird comes playfully to their hello and brings good sailing weather, then the mariner kills it. After that, everything turns into deadly stasis in the poem. After it, shout, hello, all they like, no bird comes. In any of its forms, hello can mean all these things. We say it to someone we've just met. It's a friendly and informal ritual gesture of greeting, whether it's someone we know or someone we've never met before. It can mean someone's surprised or attracted or caught off guard by something or someone as in, hello, what's this? Who's this? It can be a polite demand for attention. Imagine you're standing in a shop and the person you want to serve you has gone through the back, say, so you shout it. Hello? <laughs> it can also suggest there might be nobody there at all. For instance, you've fallen down a well and are stuck at the bottom of it looking helplessly up at the small circle of light that's the rest of the world and you're shouting it in the desperation and hope that somebody will hear, hello? Or you answer a phone call and you say it and nobody answers or there's nobody there so you say it again into the silence more and more insistent each time hello hello is anybody there are you there and you can hear me but you're just not replying for some reason can you help me oh now that's definitely caught my attention what's all this then what do you want yes i'm here can you take me safely across in your boat are we anywhere near land yet please be well please don't be broken Please get better, be safe. I love you and I'm going to plaster the universe with your name and my love. I'm on your trail and I'm coming after you. Eh, hi. Good to see you again. Good to meet you. Every hello, like every voice, in all the possible languages and human voices, the least of it, holds its story ready, waiting. And that's pretty much all the story there is. Round any telling of it, a deep green colour, layered with grime and dust from all the seasons over a door in a wall, both the door and the wall invisible under the massive swath of ivy shifting its leaves in slight breeze choreography, lit here and there by the brighter green of its newer leaves, the newest of these such small perfected leaf shapes already that it's both ordinary and mind-blowing. And then there are little plant teeth-like roots coming off the tendrils, reaching for and holding to whatever surface they touch, dogged, firm, working to become more root than tendril, the whole thing fed by a taproot so deep and tough that whoever or whatever tries to cut it back or dig it out, here it comes all over again, one unfurled leaf at a time. Oh, thank you so much. It also feels with Hello. The, <laughs> the first kind of the opening gambit in a in, uh, in reaching for, for companionship. Mm. Um, and that is, I think, where I would like to, to leave things before opening to the audience is on that subject of, of uh, the companion, because obviously it is in the title of the book. And it's one thing, actually, that I remember quite a few years ago discovering the origins of etymologically in French eh. being about, like, the person with whom... You break bread. You break bread. It's wonderful. Companion, you're, you're a person with whom you eat, the person with whom you share what you've got to eat, the person who shares what they've got to eat with you. And yet one of the, one of the things we, we find in Companion Piece is an exploration, mm. I guess, of the, the breadth of the, the concept of, com of Companion. Because I suppose one of the things that the, the pandemic sort of foisted upon many of us is looking for companionship in places where one might not have looked before yeah. and in a way i guess that's sort of perhaps that's one thing which has come out of this whole situation is enriching that idea in many of our minds about where the solace of companionship can can come from who doesn't know that right now what what it was that, that saw us through whether it was the loved ones we couldn't be with the loved ones we could be with and fought with <laughs> crazily because we were shunted together in a very small space for so long. The loved ones that we were in that small space with and we knew we loved beyond belief. The loved ones who we lost in our lives. The loved ones who will come in our lives in the future that we all held to as we waited in that liminal space that was around us and we were in for that time. 
the question of how we got from minute to minute, hour to hour and day to day, and why, <laughs> and why we would spend our time reading, why we would spend our time listening to music or talking nonsense or thinking how to make what we had left in the cupboard go you know, as far as it could in the time we had for as many people as we were in the space with. Um, we have fallen back on our primal selves in a way which granted us the chance to renegotiate where we are in a world that asks things to be very surface, to be very, very, very flattened out, to be very about this thing that we hold here, that we look on, it's a screen. And lucky for us, we had each other on a screen. We were lucky we had Zoom. We were lucky we were able to do, um, uh, you know, to be able to see loved ones on the screen. But oh my goodness, what a screen had asked of us and is asking of us again, which is really basically a combination of shopping and shocking. It wants to shock us and it wants us to shop. Those are the things that the screen wants of us. And yet we knew what to do with the screen as soon as we weren't with somebody. Hi. How you doing? Oh God. All right. We know what we want. We know we want no screen between us. And those things, I think, are all, again, at play in the notion of how we will go forward uh, now and how we can unlock ourselves from that lock-in that we all found ourselves in across the whole world and still are going to have to deal with because we haven't dealt with it yet. It's not gone very far, COVID, you know? I know it's, it's, it's um, morphing and and uh, we're learning to live with it, but God knows what that means. We will find out. Yeah. On which note, mm. I'm going to hand over to you. If you have a question for Ali Smith, just raise your hand. We'll get a microphone to you so which it's one? recorded for the podcast. The microphone is back there. Who would like to, to kick us off? Don't be shy. Yeah, Here's we've one. got one just down the front. The microphone's just behind you if you... Hello. Hello. Hi, Ali. Hi. I'm Juliana. Um, We've thank met you before. Have we met before, Juliana? No. We haven't. No, no you look really no, familiar. Should... There oh. we go. <laughs> <laughs> we... Yeah. I remember. Okay. Um, right. Um, I, I wanted to say, Ali, you were talking about the um, seismic change caused by COVID. And I didn't think we could really spend time in the presence of a Scottish person today and not talk about the other seismic political change that's back on the agenda with um, yep. the possible independence vote for yep. Scotland. And I wondered if you thought that would um, have some kind of huge impact on your own literary um, creative ideas um, in the same way that, that COVID had, mm. um, or if you think it's going to be a much more um, sort of gradual process and something that will be absorbed in a, in a less creative way. Okay, that's really a really interesting question. Being Scottish exploded me into creativity at a very early age. It was so exciting to be the age I was coming up reading when I was 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 into what is now called the second Scottish literary renaissance of the, second, of the 20th century. It was. The writers in Scotland in the 1970s and 80s were changing everything, were making forms and voices that had not been seen in literature possible. And they I think they revolutionized the English novel. The novel in English is what I mean by that. And the novel in all its Englishes is also what I mean by that. It was such a gift to grow up at a point when writers like Alastair Gray and Jim Kelman and Liz Lochhead and, um, I mean, I could, uh, Tom Leonard, and we, I, could, I could just list now for, you know, half an hour, the number of writers who made all sorts of everything possible when, and, and behind them as well, that they had come from Lewis Grassic Gibbon and they'd come from Hugh McDermott and they'd come up through George Mackay Brown and into Muriel Spark. So I was, I feel like Scotland created any creativity in me. Full stop, bang, open, everything was possible. Voices from anywhere were possible, any form was possible. And on the page, you could do anything you liked. Deeply European, let me say. I think what's going to happen if there is another vote uh, is that the taking away of Europe from Scotland, as it were, by the by the the referendum vote uh, in uh, the UK in 2016, will swing it if Sturgeon gets a vote. 
I don't know if Nicola Sturgeon will get a vote. I, I sincerely hope that she does because she has the mandate and she has the, the plebiscite to do it. I don't know whether she will because uh, at the moment we have a, a government in, in uh, the UK, uh, in Westminster, who is more interested in division than uniting. One of the reasons that Sturgeon and, and the um, possibilities of a new referendum differ from that division is that she is interested in uniting with a larger unit. She wants to go beyond the point at which a border has been drawn around us all that we didn't think was there and that we actually had been taken away. We didn't think it was there in the first place and it had actually been physically removed. The progress that happened when we joined the, the EU was is now a massive question. We, which Sarah and I went to Barcelona a couple of about a month ago, maybe about a month ago, and we saw the, the we felt in the, the the good folk we met the darkness of having been denied a vote. And it is dark, it's a terrible thing, and it's a, it was a, and I, so I do not know what is going to happen, but I cannot bear the divisiveness and the division that we have had to live through over these past years. And I, and I do not know what will come of it uh, in the world at large as we go towards divisiveness all across the world. We are going to have to address this in, in a, with a larger palette and a larger uh, response. Um, I think it all the time because division is the oldest political trick in the book. It's what you do for power. You say, in fact, John Berger gave the best definition of fascism I've ever heard. Um, he said, fascism is what happens when one people decides it can exclude another people or decides that it can, it can decide about another people. So it's all in the air. And I, I do not know what will come of it. What came of a, um, a, a, a Scottish Parliament was exciting, because uh, again it was it was very it, it allowed again this kind of f exciting fury of creativity to happen. So a positive way forward will do that. A negative way forward is a waste of time. Yeah. Mm. You'd like to ask the next question. Anyone else? Oh, go on. Well, well they're all very shy, it seems. So I will, uh, <laughs> I will ask one more in that case before we okay. um, finish. And it's about, I guess, the, the project generally, the Seasons project followed by Companion Piece, um, which seemed to sort of open up a sort of a new way of writing for you, a new way of sort of engaging with uh, the world, but also engaging with books. Yeah. Is there, does it, was, it feel open-ended to you? Is it, it sort of, is this now sort of the developing way that you, you engage with literature or do you, do you see yourself writing in, not that you were ever a conventional writer, but something in a more sort of, or, 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 or we have your publisher here working in a more conventional way with a, with a publisher like you did before the season's quartet or are you forever Did changed? I ever work, work conventionally? <laughs> did we ever? <laughs> I'm really, really, I'm lucky, and I'm I'm lucky in my publisher, uh, and who who has cut me a lot of slack over the years for my unconventionality and made space for me um, against odds. And thank you because uh, I, 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 you know, writing companion piece was utterly liberating, completely liberating. I hope it's a liberating read. Um, it was a liberating thing to do. Um, and I don't know what's going to come next. And I, I know there's something, mm -hmm. but I feel freed up from, uh, as I say, when I was writing Summer, I felt the insistence of the form mm -hmm. uh, in a way that uh, kind of, kind of like, like, like I was a balloon that was, had ballast and was pulling me to be steady. I had to be steady. The other books asked for it. The three books that had come before Summer asked for a steady response, which would address some of the things that had come up in those books. And at the same time, this other book was going, why? Why would it need that? Why would you do that? Why can you do, why can you do this? You know, that, why can't we do it? We can, <laughs> and we must. And that's the open possibility. And that's what I hope arises from a book which starts in the dark and opens and works to open things which look like you, they are unopenable and and to ask questions about our own um, 
um, readiness to open. So I'm open to what comes next. I have no idea what it is. Something, something, I don't know. Uh, I know it'll, I know it'll be uh, about a way forward rather than a way backwards. Thank you. Thank you. Um, just before we finish, I did also want to um, just mention something on a sort of personal note is to, to thank Ellie for her participation in our Ulysses project, which has just um, concluded. Oh, um, so we they gave me Gertie. They gave me the, the, the <laughs> I know they, they give me they give me the best part of Gertie where it shifts from Gertie's voice to Bloom's so-called Gertie's voice to, to Bloom's voice. It's just mm. the best. If, couldn't have been couldn't have been couldn't have been happier to read that. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't if you haven't heard yet heard Ali's reading, um, I mean, obviously we would recommend that you listen to the book from beginning to end. <laughs> but if you don't quite have the time for that, do check out her reading. So as Ali said, from the Nausicaa section, yes. it's it's Gertie McDowell. It is the section also that got Ulysses banned in the United States for more than a decade because of its supposed uh, obscenity. Uh, it was the the section which Margaret Heap and Jane Anderson two radical queer women publishers. And we talked a lot about this during the project that without radical queer women, Ulysses would not exist. Um, and so it felt like the perfect section uh, to give to <laughs> Ali to read. We, we discovered afterwards that it is her favorite section. And it is such a such a beautiful rendition. So if you uh, if you haven't yet heard it. Beautifully recorded do. by Sarah in our downstairs room. <laughs> <laughs> Which has with some pillows around us, which is a very good acoustic. Actually, it's be, it is. It's beautifully recorded. Yeah. yeah. So we were just so utterly thrilled to have you as part of the, the project and the reading. Don't talk just... to me about being thrilled about anything to do with Shakespeare and Company. Oh my God, I'm so thrilled. Full stop. What is okay. it like to be here? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So that all that remains for you to say, stick around continue the conversation with Ali with each other with any questions you wanted to ask me but didn't want the mic uh, thank you so much for coming out tonight and please just join me one more time in giving an enormous thank you to Ali thank you. Thank, you. thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast if you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>